Section thirty seven of the Macdermots of Ballycloran. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Macdermots of Ballycloran by Anthony Trollope. Section thirty seven. Assizes at Carracon Shannon. Part two after that question had been sufficiently often repeated the witness again said no he had been blinded and in the same way it was at last extracted from him that his ears had been stopped also and that he had been led along the road by the field that he might be able to swear that he had passed the place during the night without either seeing or hearing what was at the moment taking place there oh that miserable witness one could swear from the glassy look of his eyes that then also during those awful questions he could see nothing the sweat rolled down his miserable face that savage barrister appeared to him as the devil sent direct from the infernals for his express behoof so unmercifully did he tear him and lacerate him twenty times did he make him declare his own shame in twenty different ways Oh, what a prize for a clever, sharp, ingenious, triumphant counsellor Allowind, that wicked, false witness with his shallow, detected device. He played with him like a cat does with a mouse, now letting him go for a moment, with the vain hope that he was to escape, then again pouncing on him and giving him a fresh tear, till at last, when the young man was desired to leave the chair, one was almost inclined to detest the ingenuity of the ferocious lawyer more than the iniquity of the false witness this case was now over the bailiff again held up his head the landlord gained his cause the farmer was sent to prison and the blind and deaf witness sneaked out of town in shame and disgrace this came of not letting well alone the wednesday was now advanced and it was settled that there would not be time for the great murder case as poor thady's affair was called besides mr allewind was also to conduct that and he wanted some rest after his exertions and as he walked out with triumph some minor cases were brought forward for disposal and mr o'laugher rushed into the other court to defend terence o'flanagan before mr justice kilpatrick against the assaults made upon his pocket by that willow-wearing spinster letitia murphy in rushed also all the loungers from the other court in such a place as carrick-on-shannon a breach of promise of marriage case is not an everyday treat and consequently men are determined to make the most of it councillor o'loffer runs his hands through his dark grey hair opens wide his light blue eye pulls out the needful papers from that bottomless bag and though but the other moment so signally defeated in the other court with sure trust in his own resources prepares for victory the case is soon stated mr terence o'flanagan with five hundred a year profit rents out of the town and neighbourhood of man hamilton has to the palpable evidence of the whole and next baronies been making up as the phrase goes to letty murphy for the last six months this has been no case of bardell versus pickwick but a real downright matter of love-making on the one side and love made on the other 
Letters, too, have been written, and are now to be read in court, to the great edification of the unmarried jury, and amusement of the whole assemblage. And the deceitful culprit has gone so far as to inform the father, Murphy, that he has a thousand pounds saved to settle, if he, the father, has another to add to it. All these things Mr. O'Malley puts forward on behalf of the injured Letty, in his opening speech, and then proceeds to bring evidence to prove them. In the first place the father gives his evidence, and is cross-examined with great effect by Mr. Olafa. Then the letters are read, and are agreed by all to be very affectionate, proper, agreeable love-letters. There is no cross-questioning them, for though answered, they will not answer. And our friend, who escaped but just now melancholy from the porter-drinkers in his bedroom, is brought forward to prove the love-makings of the delinquent. All Mr. O'Malley's questions he answers with great readiness and fluency, for it was for the purpose of answering them that he came forward. He states without hesitation that love-making to a considerable extent has been going on, that to his knowledge, and in his presence, most particular attentions have been paid by Mr. Terence to Miss Letty, that they have sat together, talked together, walked together, and whispered together to such an extent that in his, the witness's mind, they had for some time past been considered to be a regularly engaged couple, and that, moreover, he had himself seen Mr. Terence O'Flanagan squeezing the hand of Miss Letty. Having declared so much on behalf of the lady, he also was handed over to Mr. O'Loffer to be made to say what he could on behalf of the gentleman. In answer to different questions, he stated that he himself was a middle-aged gentleman, about forty, a bachelor moving in good society, sufficiently so to be acquainted with its usages, that he was in the habit of finding himself in company with ladies, married ladies and single. He confessed, after some interlocutions, that he did prefer the company of the latter, and that he preferred the good-looking to the plain, the young to the old. He would not state whether he had made up his own mind on the subject of matrimony, and had a very strong objection to inform the jury whether he was engaged. Was his objection insurmountable? Yes, it was, whereupon it was decided by the court that the witness need not answer the question, as he could not be called on to criminate himself. He had probably, however, been in love, suggested Mr. O'Loffer, but he wouldn't say that he had. A little smitten, perhaps. Perhaps he had. Was perhaps of a susceptible heart? No answer. And accustomed to Cupid's gentler wounds? No answer. Hadn't he usually in his heart a prepossession for some young lady? Mr. O'Laffer must insist on having an answer to this question, as it was absolutely necessary the jury should know the nature of a witness's temperament, whose evidence was chiefly one of opinion, and not of facts, how could they otherwise know what weight to give to his testimony? Hadn't he usually a prepossession in his heart for some young lady? There was a great deal of hesitation about this question, but at last he was got to inform the jury on his oath that he usually, in fact always, did entertain such a prepossession. Was he not fond of conversing with the lady who, for the time, might be the object of this feeling? He supposed he was. Of walking with her? No, not particularly of walking with her. Did he never walk with his loved one? He didn't think he ever did, except by accident. 
weren't such happy accidents of frequent occurrence they might be weren't they gratifying accidents when they did occur why yes he supposed they were then he was fond of walking with his loved one why taking it in that way he supposed he was mr olafa supposed so too did he never whisper to his loved object no never what never never what could he swear that he had never whispered to the present object of his adoration he had no object of adoration well then object of love he had no object of love that is he wouldn't say whether he had or not he thought it very hard that he should be asked to all these questions well then object of prepossession could he swear that he had never whispered with the present object of his prepossession never except in church that was to say he couldn't tell never except in church never walk with her except by accident mr olafa surmised that the witness was a very cautious fellow quite an old bird not to be caught with chaff did he never sit by her sit by who by the object of his prepossession he supposed he might at dinner or at a party or a concert or a ball what sit by the object you love best at a concert and not whisper to her between the tunes and you a connaught man said mr olafa come mend your reputation a little wasn't that a slip you made when you said now you'd never whisper to her at a concert perhaps he had at a concert well now i thought so i thought by your complexion you wouldn't sit by a pretty girl and take no notice of her did you never squeeze a girl's hand while you were whispering to her he couldn't remember now on your oath did you never squeeze a girl's hand he might have done so did you never put your arm around a girl's waist at last the witness owned he might have done that and now one question and i've done did you never kiss a girl no answer come that's the last after all you've owned you needn't haggle at that out with it man it must come at last did you never kiss a girl alas for the sake of morality the witness was at length obliged to own that he had perpetrated the enormity and asked mr olafa with a look of great surprise were you never proceeded against for damages was an action for breach of promise of marriage never brought against you no never the witness had never been in such a predicament what never you who have declared i won't say unblushingly for heaven knows you have blushed enough about it but openly and on your oath that you have always some different object of affection with whom you walk sit talk and whisper whose hand you squeeze round whose waist you put your arm a crime by the way never imputed to my client whom you even confess that you kiss and yet you sit here secure unassailed unsolicited for damages unengaged as you lead us to suppose what are the fathers and brothers of connaught doing to let such a hydra-headed monster as thou near their doors such a wolf into their sheep pens go down thou false lothario go down thou amorous turk and remember that a day of retribution may yet come for yourself the unfortunate witness hurried out of court ran through the pelting rain to the inn 
crammed his brushes and pantaloons into the carpet-bag in spite of damp farmers and burly porter drinkers paid a guinea for the bed in which he had never slept and hiring a post-car hurried from the scene of his disgrace regardless of the torrents which were falling on the wednesday morning for it had been forgotten till then a summons was served on hyacinth keegan to attend as a witness at thady's trial on the prisoner's behalf and as he was living in the town the service was quite insufficient time and there was no possible means by which he could avoid the disagreeable duty which was thus imposed upon him he was much annoyed however for he felt that there were no questions which he could be asked on the subject which would not annoy him to answer he had been out but little since the day on which he had been so savagely treated at drumleash indeed he had not been able to go out till quite lately and he now most thoroughly wished that he was bad enough to obtain a medical certificate which would prevent the necessity of his attending in court that however was impossible and he therefore sat himself to consider what answers he would give to the questions they would be most likely to ask him regard for his oath he had none but there were some most disagreeable questions which if asked him he would be obliged to answer with the truth for on those subjects he would be unable to lie without detection his rancour against thady was unabated unless young macdermot were hung he would be unable to avenge the mutilated stump which crippled all his exertions and now rendered his existence miserable he flattered himself however that brady's evidence would render that event certain and whatever annoying questions might be put to himself on the defence he was determined that brady should swear to enough on the direct examination to ensure his purpose on the wednesday evening it was decided that thady's case was to come on first in the criminal court on thursday morning and on the same wednesday evening keegan sent for brady into his office pat was now regularly installed attorney's managing man on the property and there was therefore nothing very remarkable in his sending for him although he was going to be a witness on the morrow did you hear brady said the master that they've summoned me for the trial to-morrow it's your honour they were telling me so up at the court there's dolan is summoned too who's dolan he's one of the boys mr keegan as were in it that night at mrs meehan's well and what can he say he can't say macdermot wasn't there he can't do any harm pat for if he was to swear that he wasn't there there's enough to prove that he was no your honour it isn't that he'll be saying but he'll be saying captain usher's name wasn't mentioned or maybe that the boys were merely taking their drink innocent like that's what i be afeard and that's what corney'll say you'll see if he don't he's the biggest liar in drumleash oh they'll soon knock all of that out of him besides isn't he one of these poteen boys face he is so mr keegan then they'll not believe him they'll believe you a deal sooner than him that way but you must be plain about this brady that they were talking about usher that night do you hear be deed but if you let them shake you about that you're lost d'ye hear why don't you answer me eh oh sure your honour i'll be plain enough certain sure the captain's name were mentioned mentioned yes and how was it mentioned didn't you tell me that reynolds and young macdermot were talking broadly about murdering him didn't they agree to kill him to choke him in a bog-hole or blow his brains out it were your honour they were to put in a bog-hole deem them i'll have em before i've done 
but don't you know that mcdermott reynolds and the other fellow agreed to put an end to usher why you told me so twenty times i believe they did but faith i ain't sure i heard it all rightly myself your honour i weren't exactly one of the party that won't do brady you told me distinctly that reynolds and mcdermott swore together to kill the man and you must swear to that in court why the barrister has been told that you can prove it but mr keegan do you wish me now to go and hang myself you would not wish a poor boy to say anything as drew in him be deed but someone has been tampering with you you know you'll be in no danger as well as i do and by heavens if you'll flinch now it'll be worse for you mind i want you to say nothing but the truth but you know usher's death was settled among them and you must say it out plainly do you hear and i tell you what brady if you give your evidence like a man you'll never be the worse of those evenings you spent at mohill at mrs mulready's you know but if you hesitate or falter as sure as you stand there they'll come against you and then i'll not be the man to help you out of the scrape but mr keegan your honour they do be saying that if i bring out all that it'll hang the young master out and out and then i'll have his blood upon my conscience have the devil on your conscience isn't he a murderer out and out and if so shouldn't you tell the truth about it why you fool it's only the truth what are you afraid of after telling me so often that you would go through with it without caring a flash for any one but you see there's so much more of a ruction about it now through the country than there were councillor webb and all them has made mr thady's name so great that there'd be no peace for a boy at all if he were to say a word agin him then it's a coward you are after all brady no your honour i'm no coward but it's a bad thing living in a country where all the boys is sworn to stretch you nonsense pat did they ever stretch me and haven't i done as bad and worse to them twenty times they're trying to frighten you out of your duty and you're gonna let them anyway i see you are not the man for me i thought you had more pluck in you why then mr keegan i've pluck enough but faith i don't like hanging out i don't like hanging the young man then and now it's out very well then you'll be transported for perjury that's all all the things you to swear to have been sent written out to the counsellor and when you contradict in court what you've already declared to be the truth they'll prosecute you for perjury and a deal of good you'll do young mcdermott after all after a few more arguments of a similar nature brady was again reduced to his allegiance and at last was dismissed having promised to swear stiffly both that usher's death had been agreed on at the meeting at mrs mehan's and also that in private conversation with him pat brady mcdermott had frequently expressed his determination of being revenged on usher for the injury he was doing to his sister and hyacinth keegan betook himself to the company of the fair partner of his prosperity and misfortunes comforting himself with the idea that he was sure of success in his attempts to secure thady's conviction and flattering himself that mr o'malley could at the worst only ask him some few teasing questions about the property end of section thirty seven assizes at carrick on shannon part two